Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. They say that proximity breeds familiarity and familiarity can breed contempt. And whenever it comes to the United States and Mexico, these two cultural powerhouses have been battling it out for cultural supremacy for really since the two nations have begun. Now, whenever it comes to soccer, as the sport continues to grow in the United States, we're seeing battlegrounds being drawn right and left between the newcomer on the block, the U.S., and Mexico, which has been the power in the region uh, forever. Uh, these battle lines are being drawn between the two national teams, between the two uh, domestic leagues, for the hearts and minds of the fans who have loyalties to both nations, and of course, for the dual internationals who are having to choose between which nation to represent. Now, to have this discussion, I'm bringing on a guy who I think is probably the world's foremost expert in this subject. Uh, he is a native right. of Los Angeles, California. He uh, spent time in the Academy of Cruz Azul over at uh, Mexico City. He's been a player in Liga Mekis. He's been a player in MLS. He is a former U.S. men's national team player. He's got 24 caps, six goals. He's a veteran of the 2010 U.S. men's national team. And now he's becoming one of the biggest stars in all of U.S. soccer broadcasting. And his show, uh, Football Americas, has become like the go-to uh, for soccer in this country. Hercules Gomez, thank you for coming on. Sam, that was a better intro than my own agent would have gave me. I, I appreciate the kind words, my man. How you doing? I'm doing all right, man. I'm really excited to have this conversation specifically with you. So I think we need to uh, jump in. I want to jump in with, with Liga Mekis in Mexico. Uh, okay. We know from the demographics that if MLS is going to grow in this country, they really need to go after the the Latin audience and specifically the Mexican-American audience. We can see that uh, by all the numbers and indications out there. We know that Liga Mekis is the number one league in this country, followed by the EPL and then MLS. So that is MLS's opportunity for growth. Now, we got some really good insights uh, about being a fan of both leagues or being a fan of, of Liga Mekis while you're uh, an American from these letters that we got from uh, from Ricardo Pepe and from uh, uh, D- David Ochoa, from Julian Araujo, whenever they chose their national teams. Right. And, and those guys, they had a lot of similarities. One of the big ones was that watching Liga Mekis for them was like, a, a, a family pastime. They talked about having dinner with the family and then sitting down to right. watch a Liga Mekis game. Usually it was the club that was the club of their grandfather, the club of their father, the club that all their aunts and uncles support. It was a really big way that they connected with their, with their cultural heritage. What does Liga Mekis mean to Mexican-Americans and Americans with Mexican heritage living in the United States? Football might be over, but MLS is coming back and Champions League and European soccer are in full swing. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, Bet Online is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive 50% off your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use promo code BELIEVE to get started. And it's not just basketball. Bet Online is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds, right to the Olympic coverage 
coverage from sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games. Bet Online is your number one online wagering destination. Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play all your favorite games. Bet Online, where the game starts. I will say it's changing, Sam. Um, you don't choose a Liga Mekis club, though. Unless, and, and this is the interesting thing because I'm seeing a lot of people that don't come from a Mexican cultural background that are taking interest in Liga Mekis because it's such a huge platform. I mean, you turn on the TV in a Spanish speaking. Uh, network and if it's any type of sport it's going to be football it's going to be soccer and most likely it'll be Mexican soccer most likely it's going to be Liga Amekis and most likely it's going to be one of probably five six teams you know the big teams um, the historical four America Chivas Cruz Azul Pumas and two of the Monterey teams which are like the new powers in Mexican soccer the man cities if you will that came into money in the last 15 20 years and have really really been spending and just a lot of clubs are, are not keeping pace with them. They've been really doing um, well. Uh, I, I would liken it to um, football in the South. You know, if you're from the South, you don't pick your team. Your team's been picked for you. You grow up, you're, you're probably going to, if you grow up somewhere in Alabama, um, your team most likely will be Alabama. You know, if you grow up somewhere in Texas, your team most likely will be a team in Texas. Uh, it's very likened to that. Um, these players, David Ochoa, grew up watching Chivas. You know, Efrain Alvarez, uh, his father, a longtime Chivas fan, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it comes with the territory. You know, I was, man, when I was growing up, I watched Mexican national team games, but I'd have my father talk to me about, you know, Kobe Jones and Eric Winalda and Eric Winalda's dad who had a you know, who had a business in Southern California and used to do business with my dad, you know, like like this guy came from where you came from here in Southern California and look at him now, you know, 94 World Cup scoring a free kick golasso. Uh, so I had the benefit of both worlds. I didn't have that football in front of me. You know, it wasn't until 1996 that MLS came about. My first professional game that I saw was when I was 16 years old and I grew up in Vegas, right? Um, and I drove down, you know, with a couple of friends from my club soccer team and we, you know, after a tournament, happened to catch a Columbus Crew versus, you know, um, Galaxy game at the Rose Bowl. That was my first taste. Uh, so it, it's different. What does it mean? Uh, it means family, you know, in short, Sam. It, it's what you know. It's that familiarity that you have, that bond with your family, that bond with your parents, grandparents, that gets passed down from generation to generation. There's there's a funny saying in, in, in Mexican soccer. You can change your wife, but not your team. <laughs> Well, that's that's pretty powerful, and, and that's sort of the sentiment that I'm getting reading a lot of these stories. With that being said, how does MLS in the short term try to win over some of these fans? Is there is there a chance? Yeah, there's a big chance because I don't know if you, have you ever taken part in, in watching Liga MX or, or is the curiosity of CCL, CONCACAF Champions League, or League's Cup maybe the reason that you have built a familiar familiarity with with Mexican soccer you know I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever seen like this weekend um, we're recording this and this weekend coming up will be Monterrey versus Tigres one of the biggest rivalries in Mexican soccer for my money the most passionate rivalry, rivalry there is um, and one of the most passionate in the Americas it, it's it's a great spectacle um, I think it's getting new fans it's getting Anglo fans it's getting fans that have never really taken part in Mexican soccer, never really thought about doing so. Now they're going to do so because 
it's available to them in a, in a, in a platform. And, you know, Apple Americas, um, we're now giving it to them in English. I think we're along with, uh, along with the responsibility of what we do of holding people accountable and, and keeping you informed is also educating. Uh, one of the great things I've heard about people who watch the show is many of whom have no correlation to Mexican soccer, no background in Mexican soccer, would have never watched Mexican soccer and now see themselves kind of enjoying what they're hearing from us, enjoying what's going on because we're building storylines, we're building narratives, we're educating on that, those things. And I honestly think as more and more players from Liga Mekis come over to Major League Soccer, Major League Soccer uh, to Liga Mekis, the fan, because we see this in world soccer, is going to be drawn to certain players. If you don't have a familiarity with that team, if you don't have a bond with that city, if you don't have a bond with its stars, you will have a bond who you cheer for in some sense or another, you know, whether that's Lucas Alarayan going from Tigres to Columbus, you know, whether that's uh, Carlos Salcedo going from Toronto, I'm sorry, from, from uh, Tigres to Toronto, vice versa, whatever the case may be. Gustavo Bo, you know, uh, he was at Cholos, you know, uh, it goes on and on and on and on. You may build some sort of relationship with these players and follow them where they go, like we see in world soccer. So, as that continues to grow and Mexican soccer continues to develop and Major League Soccer continues to develop, we're going to see a lot more of that. And I, I really think both will benefit from that. Yeah, and that that's largely how I started watching Liga Mackeys. I mean, I've always watched wherever the Americans are, that's where I'm going to watch. So whenever Hercules Gomez was down in Mexico tearing it up, I watched I watched your games. I watched yeah, uh, Tijuana whenever Paul Areola <laughs> was over there. I haven't been watching a lot lately because there's not many relevant Americans in Liga Mekis right now, but uh, I do have – that's that's my familiarity with the right. league. Now, you mentioned – you mentioned players kind of pr cross-pollinating, and, and that kind of brings me into this quote I have from uh, Liga Mexi president uh, Mikel Ariola, kind of on the ongoing sort of um, flirtation between the two leagues, between Liga Mekis and MLS. He said, uh, MLS is growing 20% per year. In terms of the value of the teams, the last 10 years, Liga Mekis has grown 5% per year. We think it's a very good idea to grow together and to generate more for our partners and more growth for our players. It goes on to say, um, Ariola, who previously worked in Mexican politics, acknowledged that as the United States put more emphasis on soccer, it could threaten to shift the balance of power in the region. So he said Liga Mekis must safeguard its product by implementing smart partnerships with other leagues. So we're kind of talking about in the short term right now. This is more of a long term <laughs> outlook. Do you think that as MLS grows and starts to bring in more of these young, exciting players from Liga Mekis that it's already kind of starting to do. Is there a chance that uh, MLS is going to start kind of cannibalizing the, the the fans in Mexico and a lot of the fans in this region? Maybe. It, it's definitely too early to tell. Um, it's very difficult to get a Mexican fan who that's all they've ever watched, especially one that lives in Mexico, to all of a sudden tune into Major League Soccer. About the only time we see that, and I call games in Spanish for ESPN Deportes, and we had excellent numbers in the Slatan years with Carlos Vela. We built up a great narrative, the Slatan versus Vela. I mean, <clears throat> the, the interview where Slatan asked the reporter, like, uh, you know, when the reporter asked Slatan, um, you know, you say you're the best player in Major League Soccer, but here in Los Angeles, across town, there's a player, and he's got so, so many goals more than you, so, so many assists more than you, and his team's doing better than you. Do you still feel the best player in Major League Soccer? And he turns to the reporter and goes, how old is Vela? And he's playing in Major League Soccer. Where was I at that age, you know? That was me. <laughs> that was me that he told that to, and business couldn't have been better. 
uh, Latin America was tuning into Major League Soccer. They were watching Carlos Vela do amazing things. 34 goals, 15 assists in 2019 versus Slatin Mohimic in two seasons scored like 52 goals. It was ridiculous. People were tuning in because of these narratives, because of their stars, because a Mexican star was competing with one of the greatest players of our generation uh, in Major League Soccer, and the platform was there for him. But unless you get more of that, it's going to be difficult because it's not like it's not like a MLS fan taking interest because one of their players goes. They're they're more forgivable with that. They're more accepting of that. Mexican soccer is not. And I think Mikel Arriola understands that they cap themselves. They put a limit on their own success. And I think he also understands that the best thing Major League Soccer does, it's not developing players. It's not giving you a great product. It's not building tradition. It's not the culture of football. It's the selling of a product. Major League Soccer will package and sell a product better than anyone. And I think they realize that. When I speak to coaches coming from Europe, um, whether that's Major League Soccer or Liga MX, one of the few things they tell me is, I can consume Major League Soccer in Europe. Like, it's easier for me to find. I can't consume Mexican soccer in Europe. I don't know where to find it. So it's viewed as an exotic, uh, exotic league. Major League Soccer to... MLS media, I'm sorry, to Mexican media and Mexican fans is like if you said somebody's going to go play in China, somebody's going to go play in India, somebody's going to play in Australia, it's viewed exotic, but they don't realize they're just as exotic in the eyes of uh, many proper footballing uh, nations. So uh, that packaging and selling uh, of a league, um, making it stronger, I think could benefit Liga MX because I cover Liga MX finals, I cover MLS Cup finals. Uh, one treats it like a Super Bowl, uh, you know, where there's a media week. They bring in people all over from from different countries, different parts of the you know the, the states, and you cover it and you package it and you try to sell it as best you can. The other one, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to get access to their players, to their stars, to tell their stories. They don't. They have a certain distrust when it comes to the media. A certain distrust when it comes to if you don't have rights. Uh, whether it's Televisa or Tevasteca or, or Fox, whoever they are, there's a certain distrust when it comes to that. So I think Mikel Arriola and the businessmen at Liga Mekis see what's in front of them, the opportunity to package and sell Liga Mekis better in what, quite frankly, is a, a pit of money uh, in this land. Um, there's a reason that Liga Mekis does so well. And if you look at any consumer group, you know whatever you're trying to sell here in the continental United States, the number one consumer is the young Latino. Um, and they see that. They see how well it draws. They see how much these, these kids or these people spend. Uh, they want to be part of that. They want, they want those dollars. Um, so there's a reason for that. Now you talk about the, the MLS's ability to build the spectacle, and sort of that's, that's American sports culture in a word, you know, the spectacle. Yeah. Um, yeah. This year was the first Liga Mekis versus MLS All-Star game. And I got to be honest, I ate it up. I thought it was fantastic. What did you think about that game? I not it was the cool. game, sorry. It was not just the game, the, the week. You know what? The skills, um, competition, everything. Yeah, being here in LA, uh, obviously we're still, we were still very much in a pandemic, uh, in the thick of it. So um, it has room for growth. But I believe that was, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I believe that was Fox's like best all-star game that they've had in, in I don't know how many years. You know, people tuned in. People can say what they want, that they've got whiplash from this MLS Liga Mekis relationship. Uh, but until 
USA Mexico stopped selling until MLS Liga Mekki stopped selling. You're going to see a lot more of it. In Leagues Cup 2023, you're going to have a mini World Cup for a whole month where two leagues stop. You could say whatever you want, but I guarantee you people will tune in. It's it's human nature. Um, people enjoy this rivalry. And now that it's getting so competitive, we're going to see a lot more. Because before the U.S. Men's National versus Mexico wasn't competitive. It took the late 90s, early 2000s to make it somewhat competitive. Uh, and then it was a turn, you know, right after the 2014 World Cup. And then all of a sudden, it's coming back again. It's competitive again. If you look at Liga MX versus MLS, it's never been competitive. But if you look at the last four or five years, things have started to turn. It's habitual to see a major league soccer club knock out not just one, but multiple Liga MX clubs in, in the group phase, the knockout stages, whatever the case may be. Uh, so, so that's still going to be something people consume. Um, it is what it is for a reason. These things happen not by chance. Now, you mentioned the, the importance of superstars whenever it comes to attracting eyeballs to these leagues and specifically MLS. Now, let's talk about the national team. And, you know, the same conversation we're having about getting Latino eyes into MLS is the same conversation that's being had about getting Latino eyes to the American national team. What would a superstar, a, a Mexican-American superstar, a guy who's, whenever I say superstar, I mean a guy banging in goals for like a Manchester United or Real Madrid, what would that mean to this discussion? Everything, because representation means everything. Um, I, I get a lot of DMs, Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, you know, my, my work email, which is on my Twitter profile, uh, of people a lot of times not commenting on what I say. Um, but more thanking me for what I represent, thanking me for, for who I am on the platform that I have. Now that's powerful. That's, that's some crazy stuff. You know, I didn't, I didn't go to college. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a teacher. Um, I don't presume to be a role model, but when you have people thanking you for being a Latino and using your platform in a dignified manner, that's powerful. Now imagine Ricardo Pepe on a Manchester United, Man City, a Chelsea, just banging in goals. Like what that would mean to not only Mexican Americans, but Latino Americans across this country. That's a powerful thing. Um, when I say representation matters, we see a few Hispanic coaches around Major League Soccer. Maybe a few here or there in youth soccer, you know, on the youth national team levels. But we don't see them as general managers. We don't see them as presidents. We don't you know enough, given the representation that Latinos have in Major League Soccer or U.S. soccer. We don't see enough in management positions, ownerships. Um, these are powerful things. These are these are things um, people pay attention to. Um, we we want to imagine that this world is changing for the better. So we want to also imagine that the world's most popular sport, the most diverse sport in the world. Uh, should be a direct reflection in your own country. And oftentimes we don't see that. So it, it would mean a world to, to a lot of different people uh, if you had that type of representation. Now you, you're talking about representation and, and <clears throat> representing this community that traditionally hasn't been represented uh, in this conversation in this country. I want to move to this cultural discussion that I'm seeing. I don't even know if I have like a question here. I kind of just want to 
talk to you about this thing that I'm seeing and kind of get your thoughts on it. And what it is, is we know that Liga Mekis and uh, the Mexican national team have been coveting the American market. We know that Liga, uh, that the Mexican national team plays a lot of home games in the States. Uh, we know that Liga Mekis has made a concerted effort to attract uh, the American fans. And we're seeing that happening. We're seeing that come together. And as we're seeing that come together, um, we're starting to see a lot more criticism of things that are traditional within uh, Mexican soccer. Uh, things I think the best example of this would be like the chant at the uh, at yeah. the Mexican national team games, and, and the American fan base kind of using its pull and gravitas and kind of uh, imposing its American culture on this Mexican thing. And I'm seeing this really interesting discussion develop where I see Mexican fans who may not necessarily be in favor of the chant, but they don't want their culture being discussed and defined by these outsiders. They feel like this is a Mexican problem and, and we don't want the, your input on this. That's, this is something we need to That's just have stupid because own. domestic abuse isn't just a problem between two people. You know, it shouldn't be just left to those two people to figure out. This is homophobic. So why should you just say, well, you figure it out. You figure homophobia out for the, homophobia out for the rest of us. It's, it's a ridiculous statement to make. Uh, what I will say is um, it's a homophobic chant. Uh, you don't get to decide the power your words or your insults carry. Um, that's for somebody else. Um, and Mexican culture in general, and I'm speaking for in Mexico, I've been in Mexico, I've played in Mexico, largely is you tell me not to do it, I'm going to do it. And it goes... Logic goes out the window. The education goes out the window because I guarantee you these people wouldn't be yelling that in their workplace. They wouldn't be yelling that if there was fan ID. They wouldn't be yelling that, you know, in front of their parents. Um, they're yelling it because they think it's funny, because they know it hurts, because they think it does damage. Whatever the case may be, it's idiotic, it's stupid. Where I think you're getting at, and I've seen that rhetoric a, a lot online, is um, you can't have an opinion because you don't know what it's like. Um, while that may be true for a lot of different things, it's not true in this case. Injustice is injustice anywhere for everybody. So you shouldn't sit back if you see homophobia. Um, if it bothers you, it should bother you, you should say something. And in a place that's supposed to be a family environment, I'm a father too. My daughter's four and a half. She's of the age where she goes to games. You know, I want to take her to Angel City. I take her to the Galaxy games and LFC games when I call games. Um, I wouldn't want her to be subjected to that, you know. I, there are certain things that don't belong in this game. Whether you think it's funny or not, it has nothing to do with culture. It has a lot to do with education. You know, we're we're only a, a few days out from the uh, from the Caretero tragedy, uh, and your podcast on that event was absolutely tremendous, and and I learned a lot from that. So thank you for that. Uh, but you know. Throughout the 70s and 80s, we saw English soccer in particular just kind of overrun by hooliganism. It was yeah. a really tragic uh, period in their soccer culture. Uh, I think it culminated, I believe it was 1989 with that game, I believe, between Liverpool, Liverpool and Rome. Juventus. Oh, is it Juventus yeah. or Rome? Uh, I'm not sure. Those, those details pages? are not really important. Yes. The important thing is following that... Uh, English soccer really started to clamp down on hooliganism, started to change the atmosphere at the game, started gearing things towards a more fan-friendly atmosphere. <clears throat> Do you think that this event in Mexico is going to have any type of impact like that throughout soccer in Mexico? 
Well, Sam, the important detail here is they were actually banished from European football for a number of years following that. Yeah. That's yeah, why. Five years. Yeah, that's why action was taken and that's why change was imposed because FIFA finally did something. That's the only way these things are going to change is when the governing body, a, a, a federation is supposed to protect and grow the sport comes in for the betterment of the sport. That hasn't happened here in Querétaro. It's been one of these, like, we won't get in it, they're handling type of decisions, type of type of moments. Um, that has many feeling that it's fueled by the dollars. It's fueled by, you know, not disrupting business as usual. It's it's a sad, it's a sad turn of events that we just saw in Querétaro Atlas. I've been part of Mexican soccer for a long time. I've lived in Mexico. I've been part of that culture. And I said this on the show, the best part about Mexico isn't the, the awesome tacos you eat, the food. It isn't when you go to the beaches in Cancun. It isn't Playa del Carmen. It isn't all these great spots like the pyramids. It isn't all these things that you get to experience on your vacation. It's the people. It's honestly the people and how great the people are. People will never understand Mexican culture and how amazing their people are. What we saw was likened to organized crime. There were people being left bloodied and half dead and stripped naked as if to showcase as trophies that we've seen happen in Mexican culture with organized crime. And that that's a frightening thing. You know, we saw images of, of families fleeing taking a father, taking cover over his son so he doesn't get beaten. A father hand in hand with his wife and his two kids, urging their kids to take off their jerseys because it's the opposing team jersey. It's crazy. It's something that no family should ever experience, no fan should ever experience. The last thing you should be thinking about if you go to a sporting event is your safety. Um, so. You know, the, these these events are unfortunate because it, it, it paints such amazing people in a negative light. And I think that's where a lot of these comments that you're were referring to, Sam, about you can't comment on this, leave this to us, come into play. People are hurt. People are hurt. They We're seeing a lot of xenophobic rhetoric as well online because of this, you know, um, and people are right, rightfully upset. Yeah, I saw so many people that night. Um, I follow a lot of Liga Mekis fans on Twitter, and I saw a lot of them saying things like, uh, "This is it for them in Liga Mekis. That they're 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 done with the league now." Do you think that 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 event is going to have a lasting impact on fandom of of that league? So the following weekend, when games resumed, because they actually resumed right after that game, there was yeah, about three that was games. crazy. Yeah, which is nuts. They should have ceased operations. They happen to be three of the biggest clubs that were in play of those games, you know, uh, Chivas, America, Monterrey, uh, three of the, uh, of the biggest clubs there. So nothing was, was changed. But the following weekend, no protocols have been established. The, uh, the investigation is still ongoing. They did a manifestation at the 63rd minute, you know, every single game where they got together and there's no violence, you know, uh, no más violencia and all that stuff because the game was halted at Las Queretaro around that same time. And they went business as usual. Um, we had Miquel Arriola on Football Americas, and that episode actually comes out tomorrow. I don't want to, I don't know when this comes out, but that will come out. Uh, you probably will already get a chance to see that, but we actually interviewed Miquel Arriola, president of Liga Mekis, and 
He guaranteed the safety of spectators. He guaranteed the safety of American Liga Mekis fans or American fans traveling to Mexico, whether that's for Liga Mekis or the Mexican national team, U.S. game, whatever the case may be. He guaranteed their safety on an ongoing investigation. They seem to think they have a grasp of where to go from here, how to keep it safe for everybody. Um, but that weekend when games resumed, there was a clear dip in attendance, a clear dip in attendance, a, a Pumas versus Cruz Azul game. That's a massive, you know, Clasico Derby, clear dip in attendance in Mexico city, uh, games, uh, across Mexico, huge dip, say whatever you want. I think it's, I think it's relevant. I think people are rightfully, you know, timid, rightfully want to see where, where this goes before they invest themselves back into Liga Mekis. Now, how long that will last, I, I, I don't know. But definitely, definitely, I, I think at least for that weekend, people were, I'm going to keep my distance until I figure this out. Absolutely. One, one of the things that I found fascinating about your discussion following it was whenever you talked about how important the, or, or I said, maybe important is not the right word, how influential the ultras are uh, on these clubs in Liga Mekis, the ultras and the Badas. And you told stories about like, this is the ultras actually like talking to the team and having access to the team and kind of having influence within the club. How powerful are these organizations? And is, is there even a chance that Liga Mekis would ban these groups league-wide? We, we asked Mikel Arriola and he said that they wouldn't ask to ban them league-wide. But certain clubs have already taken that decision into their own hands. Chivas has taken the decision into their own hands. They will have no barras. It's going to be a family affair at their games. Uh, Necax actually decided to play with no fans uh, in their game, um, which was even you know a, a step more extreme. They're, they're starting to take matters into their own hands. Um, but you have to assume that these ultras carry so much weight that Mikel Arriola and the Mexican Federation owners or the owners of these teams that run the Mexican Federation wouldn't just be like, let's just get rid of them completely. Um, it, it's, a, it's a crazy scenario where it makes you scratch your head asking why can't they just you know, get away from these teams. And Mikel Arriola seems to think that these groups of animation, because he wouldn't even call them barras, groups of animation um, aren't the issue. It, it's this culture that they've tried to instill from other places that are the issue. Listen, I've had teammates, I've experienced my own dealings with, with Barras. I've had teammates in different countries uh, tell me their stories. I had a teammate who told me he once played in a South American country, a big club, and the Barra leaders would come and ask for a stipend from the players, like a percentage of their salaries. And it wouldn't be like an ask, it would be more like a demand. Um, I've had others tell me how certain owners would open their doors and let these these ultras come into like the team bus and threaten the players for better results. We just saw Monterrey a few weeks ago, the fans were literally inside the team facility waiting for the players as they drove in behind the gates and were demanding answers from the Monterrey players. You know, uh, it's, it's a crazy situation that, and, and I said it back then a few weeks ago when this happened in Monterrey, like, the next step could be scary. And then the Queretaro Atlas thing happens. And that wasn't player uh, ultra type of thing. That was ultra versus ultra. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping these ultras have less influence in the game and it can go back to a, being a, a family affair, which for many years in Mexican soccer was the case. Yeah. 
this whole event has been absolutely tragic and it's it's been really disappointing to see how it just does not seem like the things that are being done are, are enough or even addressing some of the issues but but i do want to move away from that i want to move to your career you talking about you as a soccer player and you as an american soccer player i think the the high point of your career probably the reason why we're talking to each other right now was that 2009 year in Puebla whenever you got the 10 goals whenever you were uh tied for the league lead and uh in goal scoring and you were just on that absolute hot streak it seems like the striker position is one that is defined by these highs mm -hmm. and these lows and, and and I think we can see we can think of a lot of players right now that are kind of living in those highs and those lows what tell me about being a striker and tell me about the high points and the low points what was a high point from your career what was a low point and kind of how do you deal with that those in-betweens so 2010 was a good year um I, I won the goal scoring title with this guy named Javier Hernandez um he goes to Manchester United I stay in <laughs> Liga Mekis. Yeah. Um, I did it in 700 minutes. I did it not being a starter. I won a league goal scoring title. And that's because I was just the hot hand. Everything I touched would just go in. You're in this moment. You're in this scenario that I've had many times throughout my career being a hot hand where you know, like, I'm confident, you know, things are going well. Just try it type of deal. I played the World Cup and the Club World Cup in the same year. And literally, the following year, I get sold to Pachuca, <clears throat> big sell, finally making money, nice little check, nice little signing bonus. I'm like, wow, this is what being a professional is about. I get to Pachuca, insane facilities. Now I got players coming from Boca Juniors. I got players who had already played a club World Cup, you know, all these different things, whatever the case may be. Um, and I don't play. I'm not to the coach's liking. I played 200 minutes the following season after being a score, goal scoring champion in Mexico. And I'm like, I, I, I don't understand. I'm the same player. I do the same things. I can't get on the field. Or when I'm on the field, I can't get the ball. When I get the ball, I can't find the opportunity. And I think some of these players, like Ricardo Pepe especially, is experiencing that right now. These are things you have to go through as an individual, especially a striker, to know. Now, after that, I knew it was about weathering the storm. I went to Tecos after Pachuca, started banging him in again. You know, I got sold to Santos, probably the best, I, I would say, form of my career, banging him again. You know, I was on a crazy tear where I, while I was at Santos. We played three finals, two leagues, and a, no, I'm sorry, one league and two CONCACAF Champions League finals in like an 18-month span. It was unbelievable. I was scoring goals left and right. And you learn to weather those things. I wasn't getting called in from the Nationals. He was very much a Jordan Peefock situation. Jurgen wasn't calling me in, and I would use that as motivation. You would, you would learn how to weather these elements. And that's what I think we're seeing is a lot of these players are still learning how to weather these elements. Ricardo Pepe's still the same player. Ricardo Pepe's still going to score goals if you put goals in front of him. If you put quality opportunities in front of him, he's going to score goals. He just needs those opportunities. How do you get those opportunities? Confidence. How do you build that confidence? You know, that's more repetitions. That's having something go your way in the outside world. That's that's just one going in, you know, to, to, to show you that it can happen. The floodgates open. And to be measured when they don't go in. Because right now, I'm certain that Ricardo Pepe's questioning whether FC Osberg was the correct move for him. We had Jurgen Klinsmann on the coach, and he said, uh, sorry, we had Jurgen Klinsmann, coach of the ex-coach of the U.S. Men's National Team, German national team, come on the show, and he said that maybe now is not the right time. And he said this, 
months before he went. And he ended up going and ended up being Jurgen was right. I mean, if he's at FC Dallas right now and the narrative was FC Dallas won't let him go, everybody hates the Hunts. Everybody hates FC Dallas and they still love Ricardo Pepe and Ricardo Pepe's in Major League Soccer, probably banging in goals and he's still the starting number nine and with a lot more confidence on the U.S. men's national team. I'm not saying that's the correct move. I'm just saying that's a different narrative. And I'm saying it's a different way of him handling things. Jordan Pifak right now, who knows what he's thinking? I mean, the guy can't stop scoring. Unbelievable pace. And he's a different type of player than the pool has. He's literally a guy that you're like, he's going to get me goals. He's good, on, he's good on set pieces. He's good on getting the inner things. He's good in the box, his movements. He's instinctive. And he has goal. He has goals in him. Then you got a guy like Josh Sargent, who, for my money, is the best nine in the pool, just off talent alone. You know, technically very good, tactically very intelligent, can play multiple positions, finds himself in, you know, inside the box, very good with his back. His best attribute probably is that he makes others around him good, but doesn't have that goal scorer's touch like the other two. So it's about learning who you are. It's about kind of riding those waves that any professional is going to have throughout his career, especially a nine. But these kids are so young. P Fox 22. Ricardo's 19. You know, Josh is at 20, 21. Uh, DK is about the same age. Like uh, Matthew Hoppy's 20. Uh, who else we got in that list? They're all kids. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the age. I mean, for a guy like Ricardo Pepe, the timeline between him beginning to get starts for, uh, for FC Dallas to scoring his first goal for the national team was like six months. And then, you know, within within 10 months, he's in Germany. It just it's all happened so fast for him. You, on the other hand, by the time 2010 came around, you were kind of already a seasoned professional at that point. So yeah. at, at that point in your career, what was it like getting that call up from your national team and getting that opportunity? Wow, Sam, it's funny because I think about this all the time. Things have changed so much. I was 22 years old. And I was a developmental player. I don't know if you remember those. Developmental players in Major League Soccer. I made $860. Yeah. like the Generation Adidas thing? Not even that. Those guys made money. I made $860 a month my first contract at age 19 when the youngest players on the team were 22, 23 years old, rookies out of college. I was 19 years old, 860. Won an MLS Cup with the Galaxy. Um, following year, I get loaned out to Seattle. Break my foot the first day in Seattle. Uh, I shortly, shortly after that, I get waived. Never really played. I played one game for like the Galaxy. I come back in 2005. They offered me $1,200 a month, a senior developmental. I'm like 22 years old, 21 turning 22 years old. I don't play half the year. I'm only playing reserve league in the reserve league that they started, Major League Soccer. The guys who didn't play the night before, the next morning would play against the rival teams. You know. I, reserves in a, in a morning reserve league uh, a few notables of that reserve league chris wandalowski you know um i started scoring a few goals i'm not even playing as a nine i'm playing as a as a winger you know i start scoring a few goals okay all of a sudden i start making the roster don't play this was steve sams an ex-coach of, of costa rica ex-coach of the u.s men's national team summer comes along landon donovan uh goes to gold cup albright goes to gold cup jovan karofsky goes to gold cup uh, we had a Brazilian guy uh, uh, who, who, who got bad run of form, then injured. A, a bunch of different things happened, from, and I ended up playing. Ended up scoring one goal, then another goal, then another goal, then the Open Cup, keep scoring goals. 
I had scored something like 10 league goals in half a season, uh, six in the Open Cup, and like five in the or five or six in the Reserve League in half a season. It was something crazy. I get voted team MVP as a developmental player. And I'm thinking to myself, like a 22-year-old today who does that in Major League Soccer, all that, and I mean like one after the other, is going to get a lot of buzz. And he's going to Europe, you know? He's going to have the hype machine around him, and he's going to Europe. Back then, you had Chris Rolf, Damani, I'm sorry, Chris Rolf, Damani Ralph. Uh, you had all these really good players. Taylor Twelman, who I think that year was, was the MVP. He was already uh, older. But you had these really good players who couldn't get anywhere near these things, you know? So it, it, was, it was different. I'd already experienced that success, but nothing came about it. So when nothing comes about it, it does something to you, you know? Um, whether that's work ethic or whether that's humility, it does something to you. I don't know what I would have been like if I would have started having that attention at such a young age, having that, I mean, having the money at such a young age, because I'm 27 years old when I go to Mexico on a six-month contract because I had no other offers. And it works out. And not only does it work out, but it works out in my favor where now it's a free, I mean, it should be in theory a free transfer, but in Mexico, you're not free, at least in that time. So I have to get sold. And I make a transfer fee off a sale from Puebla to Pachuca. So this a 10% goes into my pocket. Then I get a signing bonus. Then I get a massive contract. Then I get bonus money from the World Cup. Then I get bonus money from the Club World Cup. And I'm thinking to myself, I had never seen this type of money. You know, the most I had made in Major League Soccer was $52,000 a year. It makes you appreciate things a little bit more, but it also makes you concentrate on what's important. And I think that that like laser focus at that stage in my career was like, I've seen the other side of this. I don't want to go back. So if you want to take it from me, literally come take it from me. So it's it's very different. You know, I had to literally envision like, this is my deathbed. If somebody wants to come and take it from me, like that's, you know, try it type of deal. Um, and it worked out, you know, in that case. And then you would have some low moments. But you you knew, like, the low wasn't as low because you could still get there. So, I don't know. what I guess what I learned out of all that is just riding that wave and, and, and the humility. You know, your best, best I've ever heard, best piece of advice is you're never as good, but you're also never as bad. So, you know, just staying even keeled. So, Herc, one question that I ask all the uh, former national team players that I have on, I mean, you just mentioned sort of your story and where you came from and just all the trials and tribulations, the struggles. You started MLS at a time whenever MLS, there was, it was not a certainty that MLS was going to be around for very long. I mean, it just came off of a, a right, I think right before you started was whenever the, the league almost folded. Yeah, uh, two teams, the, Tampa Bay and, yeah, and Miami. Really sticky actually, situation. Yeah. Year 2000. Yeah, yeah so... Fast forward to today, soccer has become the fourth most popular sport in this country. The popularity of this sport has increased tremendously. The popularity for the national team, the popularity for the domestic league. How does it make you feel as someone who has given your life to this sport and is continuing to give to be a part of that growth? Well, I, I will say I don't do things for free. So, you know, so I, you know ESPN, <laughs> ESPN's a, it's, it's a nice place to be. Um, but I'm actually the sophistication of the sport, it's why it's being driven and going where it is. 
And I, I give you guys a ton of credit because I, I always joke and say, you guys are my foot soldiers. You guys are our foot soldiers. But in reality, like the content creators, the people that, that invest so much time into the sport, that love the sport, that, that demand accountability. Like it's not your, <clears throat> not that there's anything wrong, <clears throat> excuse me, not that there's anything wrong with the soccer mom culture. It's a family environment, but the fan has changed. The demand has changed. And people like you, Sam, uh, other content creators, others who are demanding, like that generation, and I see it all the time on, on my followers, I see it all the time and people I engage with are, you know, uh, first, second, third generation, you know, American slash something, you know, Mexican American, Colombian American, Brazilian American, you know, Ukrainian American, whatever the case may be, they grew up consuming the sport a different way, but now very much enjoy what is this. I don't want to say enjoy the soccer culture, but enjoy their football in this country. They just want it being relevant. They just want it being cared to the way that other countries care to their sport. That to me is the best. That is the best feeling. I, you know, I, I try to engage with, with people as much as I can because that's direct to consumer. That's, that's who we're talking to, right? I had somebody literally the other day tweet at Sebastian and I and say, you don't know me, but you soon will. Like, I will be on Football Americas. I will be working with you guys. In Spanish, there's a saying, creando escuela. Like, we are literally, I don't want to say leaving a legacy, but we, we are trailblazing, like, what, what you're doing could be where I am tomorrow. You know? And, and some fans just getting in the game watching you, the next step could be there. Like, the game is evolving, and so is the, how people consume it, and so is the content. And that, to me, is, like, the greatest form of respect you know, the, the fact that there's this new wave of fan and they see the game the way that we do and they want the change like we want the change and they want more. That to me screams volumes of, of where this country, and I'm just U.S. and Canada because if we're just talking Major League Soccer, but where football can go, you know, in this area. Now, you talk about the growth, and I, th I think a big part of that uh, happened at, at a game in the World Cup in 2010 against Algeria, a game that you were a part of, a game that you actually started. Yeah. Uh, that has gone down to become one of the most legendary games in the U.S. men's national team history. Can you tell me, this is where we're going to finish up, Herc. Can you tell me about going into that game, what the atmosphere was like, what the talk was like in the locker room, and then leading up to that moment, you were you actually got substituted, I think, at halftime for yeah. Benny Thalhaber. Yeah, and, uh, Benny, Benny was the halftime What half it was like man. watching that from the bench? Uh, how old are you? I am 33. Okay. So everybody has that game that, like, turned them on to their national yeah. team. Whether that's U.S. men's, Mexican, Canadian, everybody has that game, right? Turned them on to the game. Mine was the 2002 World Cup. I'm 18 years old, and I'm watching South Korea, the U.S. Men's National Team, play against Mexico. And my father is sitting next to me, huge Mexico fan. And the look on his face when Landon Donovan and Demarcus Beasley ran Mexico ragged. The Dos Acero at the World Cup. That game, to me, is forever engraved in my mind. That game, to me, is the game that I'm like, these kids, that World Cup, these kids my age are there, I want to be there. We had Matt Turner on Football Americas the other day. Matt Turner, who, who does not have frostbite, the other day on Football <laughs> Americas. 
and and the, a few weeks ago, and he we're doing a Rogue to Qatar series with Sam Borden, which is fantastic. He interviews a bunch of the U.S. men's national team stars. It's fantastic, and he spoke about the 2010 World Cup and how that made him want to be a footballer. That's my World Cup. That's so crazy for me to hear. That is one of the most fantastic moments of my life. Not sporting life, my life. Just insane. I got to live out a dream moment. And this guy is telling me that like something I was part of inspired him to be where he is today. I still remember like it was yesterday. I wasn't even supposed to go to that World Cup. I was. I didn't do a single game in the World Cup qualifier. That's like if in today's World Cup qualifiers, somebody who doesn't do one minute in the World Cup qualifier, three months before the tournament, gets on a plane. And not only gets on a plane, but plays three of the four games. And the game I didn't play, I will tell you a short story after this of why I didn't play. But I was a part of that, an integral part of that. And here I am the day before the game, and Jesse Marsh, Mike Sorber come into my room and they tell me I'm going to start the next day. And I'm this isn't coaches, and I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, the most important game in the history of US soccer, and I'm starting. That's in my eyes what that game was. The most important game in the history of US soccer, and I'm starting. In a game where it was back and forth, I had a few chances. I had one chance to keep her. Uh, made an unbelievable save on it. Another chance at point blank I probably should have made. Like, great part of that game. And then you're thinking, like, you go from being tied and you're going to get knocked out of the World Cup to the play down the right. Benny Falhaber, Josie Altador, you know, Clint Dempsey, little scrumble comes right back to Landon. Landon finishes it up. And we're first place in the group, first time in our history in a World Cup. And we're going to the next round against Ghana. It was, like, one of the most crazy surreal moments in my life i still remember coming back to the lodge uh, in peroria and the staff at the lodge like in celebration with the drums dancing our family meeting us there it was one of these crazy moments i'll never forget the rest of my life until this day like you pick a game high importance that's probably the most important game in u.s soccer's history and i was a big part of that so to me to me it's it's a huge sense of, of pride but it's also a huge sense of reflection because like for many in today's era, that's the game. That's the world cup that turned them on. So that's just surreal to me. Yeah. And it just goes to show how important world cups are and why it's so vitally important that the U S takes part because that's where these moments happen, right? That's yeah. how these fans are made. Sam, can I, can I tell you that quick story real quick? Yeah. yeah why absolutely. The first game in South Africa, um, I had scored some goals leading up to, to the World Cup against the Czech Republic. I got a goal against Peter Czech uh, in Australia, uh, against Australia in South Africa. Uh, a friendly, we played against them. I came on for like three minutes to waste time. I bagged another goal. So like Bob Bradley and the coaching staff had faith like I could continue to be that super sub I was when I won the goal scoring title in Mexico, right? It's 1-1 against England in the opening game of the World Cup. Um crazy back and forth. England didn't play too well. Um, we're picking up a huge result. Bob crazy tells me to get up. goal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Green let that one slip in. Um, Josie had this moment where he turned and hit the post. Like, it was, it was crazy. Um, tells me I'm going on, and there's like six, seven minutes left in the game. And I'm like, whew, I'm going in. 
Like all I want to do is step on the field and say I played in a World Cup. I'm going in. It's my it's it's my dream. It's any footballer's dream to play in a World Cup. I'm going in. The ball doesn't go out of bounds. They're keeping possession. We're keeping possession. The ball won't go out of bounds. One minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes go by. The ball won't go out of bounds. Literally like six, seven minutes go by. <laughs> Finally, I'm not kidding. Like it's, 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 it felt like that long. Finally, the ball goes out of bounds, and it's for Clint Dempsey. And, you know, a 1-1 tie is a great result for us. So, you know, a, as he's walking over to come off, I'm giving him, like, yo, slow down, dude. Like, slow it down, you know. I'm also being a good team and slowing down. But deep down inside, I'm like, dude, get me on the field. Literally about to, like, shake his hand and go on, the referee calls the game. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> Steve Gerundolo, the coach of LAFC, who's an amazing guy, like one of the funniest individuals you will ever meet, um, just awesome guy, comes up to me and he goes, oh, man, I, oh, dude, you almost got in. You know, same thing happened to me, my first World Cup, but, you know, don't worry about it. I'm like, what happened? And he's like, I, I'll, I'll tell you later. It's not important. I'm like, tell me later? Steve, tell me now. No, 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 it's, it's, it's no big deal. Steve, just tell me now. He's like, all right, all right. The next day, the guys who didn't play, you know, we trained and I tore my ACL. I didn't get to play in the World Cup. Like, Steve, what is wrong with you? Why would you say that? But don't worry. That's not going to happen to you. So fast forward to Slovenia. We're down, um, I believe, uh, what's the score? 2-0 or 1-0? I forget what the score was. I, I don't remember. I can't believe I'm forgetting the score. But two offensive subs. Benny Falhaber and I, come on. And we were flying. I mean, I think it was 2-0. We were fl- it was 2-0. We were flying. One goal, second goal, third goal, Moadu goal, got called back. Should have been a legit goal. We should have won that game. We're the first team in World Cup history to come down from a 2-0 deficit and not lose. It was an unbelievable game. Like, subs who came on, we did a good job. It just great spirit heading into that, you know, uh, post-game and, and whatnot. And the first person to come up to me was Steve Chirondolo. And he's like, I told you nothing would happen. <laughs> Herc, thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been absolutely tremendous. And thank you for all that you do for this, the sport in this country. I mean, you're a tremendous asset. You were a tremendous asset as a player, and you've been a tremendous asset uh, since you've gone on. I, I know Football Americas is a huge show, but what else are you doing? What else have you got going on out there? How can people reach you? Uh, so I just tried to open this YouTube channel. Uh, get some of those clips out, uh, Football Americas, um, Twitter, Instagram, you know, all these things uh, people consume, TikTok. I'm trying to get the videos out there, get Football Americas out there where the show is growing and it's because of everybody who watches, which is amazing. We're going to be in Mexico, uh, in Mexico City, pre and post. We don't have rights, but we don't care. We're going up against the people who do have rights. We're going to bring you guys your content and we're going to keep it going. Football Americas is going to be at the World Cup. Football Americas is going to be at any... Um, cultural CONCACAF sporting event that you think matters, we will be there. That is awesome, man. That's, that's really exciting. Guys, for Hercules Gomez, my name is Sam, and this is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. 
coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.